The Lord be with you. Also with you. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for this beautiful day in this beautiful city and cathedral, especially in the snow. We thank you for beauty and the way it mesmerizes us. We also pray for all those for whom snow is not beautiful because it's so cold and unsafe. We pray for everyone in our city. May you bless them with what they need. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It's really great to be with all of you. I knew it was gonna be a little bit of a light day with snow and then the women's retreat. Um, but, but you're in for a real treat. So just a few words about Sam. I've known him for about 15 years. First got to know him at a, at a Credo conference, this, this conference they do. For, for clergy, um, that's really interesting. He's a, the retired Episcopal chaplain at the University of Chicago. We had a, a wonderful and flourishing ministry in addition to other places um, as well. Published author, and I really want to highlight his, his books. We just gave you his most recent one. Sam's a spectacular author. He, um, if, you, if you look online, you can find all of them. Probably, I'll highlight two of his books. Um, one is called Brightest and Best, and it's just a series of meditations on what we sometimes call here the saint of the day, the, the, the person that we're covering in the midweek Eucharist. Um, people like Francis of Assisi or um, Martin Luther King Jr. or Jonathan Daniels, more contemporary saints, and just brief meditations on all of them. It's spectacular. Um, it actually connects with Broderick Greer. When Broderick was first... Um, putting his foot in the waters of the Episcopal Church, so to speak, or its toes in the waters. His, um, the priest at a little town called Cleveland, Tennessee, on Wednesdays would read for the homily, rather than creating something, would just read from brightest and best. And it made such an impact on Broderick, he thought, this might be for me. Um, so Sam's had a great influence on him and a great influence on me. Some of what you'll hear him do today um, about prayer literally changed how I pray. And here's how it did. I prayed a lot up through my early 30s. I tried really hard. I was very faithful, diligent, quasi-mechanical, devoted to the daily office. I had a wife, young children, and a big job. And Sam, more than anybody else, taught me that by not praying, I was actually praying. Relax. Don't make everything so complicated and stay in relationship with the people around you, with God, and you are praying. And he also taught me that we pray in different ways, in different seasons of our lives. Sometimes we need explicit prayer practices, and frankly, sometimes that's the last thing we need. So a huge influence on me um, from what I learned from him there. His newest book is Sense and Sensibility, and the talk he'll give today is um, called Adult Spirituality. Please welcome him warmly to St. John's. Thank you so much. As Richard indicated, this Wednesday uh, we're going to begin another Lent season with ashes smeared on our foreheads as a reminder that we're mortal creatures who live in a fragile world. And it doesn't get much more real than that. Baptism signifies and sacramentalizes our Christian relationship with God. And there are many different kinds of relationship with God, yet when we talk about spirituality, we tend to wander off into the weeds, or it's a word that just sort of vaporizes into foggy wisps, when in truth, spirituality is just about relationship. Frank Griswold once said, theology is how we talk about God, spirituality is how we talk with God. 
And so it's all about our relationships. So I have always thought that it's good to um, begin this presentation with some real-life relationship stuff. So, Seth, if you'll help me with that. The End of the Affair On a summer evening in Paris, Hugh and I went to see The End of the Affair, a Neil Jordan adaptation of the Graham Greene novel. I had trouble keeping my eyes open because I was tired and not completely engaged. Hugh had trouble keeping his eyes open because they were essentially swollen shut. He sobbed from beginning to end, and by the time we left the theater he was completely dehydrated. I asked if he always cried during comedies, and he accused me of being grossly insensitive, a charge I am trying to plea bargain down to a simple obnoxious. Looking back, I should have known better than to accompany Hugh to a love story. Such movies are always a danger, as unlike battling aliens or going undercover to track a serial killer, falling in love is something most adults have actually experienced at some point in their lives. The theme is universal and encourages the viewer to make a number of unhealthy comparisons, ultimately raising the question, why can't our lives be like that? It's a box best left unopened, and its avoidance explains the continued popularity of vampire epics and martial arts extravaganzas. The end of the affair made me look like an absolute toad. The movie's voracious couple was played by Ray Fiennes and Julianne Moore, who did everything but eat one another. Their love was doomed and clandestine, and even when the bombs were falling, they looked radiant. The picture was fairly highbrow, so I was surprised when the director employed a device most often seen in TV movies of the week. Everything's going along just fine, and then one of the characters either coughs or sneezes, meaning that within 20 minutes, he or she will be dead. It might have been different had Julianne Moore suddenly started bleeding from the eyes, but coughing, in and of itself, is fairly pedestrian. When she did it, Hugh cried. When I did it, he punched me in the shoulder and told me to move. I can't wait until she dies, I whispered. I don't know if it was their good looks or their passion, but something about Julianne Moore and Ray Fiennes put me on the defensive. I'm not as unfeeling as Hugh accuses me of being, but things change once you've been together for more than ten years. They rarely make movies about long-term couples, and for good reason. Our lives are boring. The courtship had its moments, but now we've become the predictable part two no one in his right mind would ever pay to see. Look, they're opening their electric bill. <laughs> Hugh and I have been together for so long that in order to arouse extraordinary passion we need to engage in actual physical combat. Once he hit me on the back of the head with a broken wine glass, then I fell to the floor pretending to be unconscious. That was romantic, or would have been had he rushed to my side rather than stepping over my body to fetch the dustpan. Call me unimaginative, but I still can't think of anyone else I'd rather be with. On our worst days, I figure things will work themselves out. Otherwise... I really don't give our problems much thought. Neither of us would ever publicly display affection. We're just not the type. We can't profess love without talking through hand puppets, 
and we never consciously sit down to discuss our relationship. These, to me, are good things. They were fine with Hugh as well until he saw that damned movie and was reminded that he has other options. The picture ended at around 10, and afterwards we went for coffees at a little place across the street from the Luxembourg Gardens. I was ready to wipe the movie out of my mind, but Hugh was still under its spell. He looked as though his life had not only passed him by, but paused along the way to spit in his face. Our coffees arrived, and as he blew his nose into a napkin, I encouraged him to look on the bright side. Listen, I said, we maybe don't live in wartime London, but in terms of the occasional bomb scare, Paris is a pretty close second. We both love bacon and country music. What more could you possibly want? What more could he want? It was an incredibly stupid question, and when he failed to answer, I was reminded of just how lucky I truly am. Movie characters might chase each other through the fog or race down the stairs of burning buildings, but that's just for beginners. Real love amounts to withholding the truth, even when you're offered the perfect opportunity to hurt someone's feelings. I wanted to say something to this effect, but my hand puppets were back home in their drawer. Instead, I pulled my chair a few inches closer and we sat silently at our little table on the square, looking for all the world like two people in love. I love beginning with David Sedaris' essay because it's a slice of reality. It reminds us that emotionally and spiritually we're all different. It also reminds us that relationships bring very different personalities into intimacy. Some of us, like Hugh, are romantics, while others of us, like David, tend to be pragmatists. Most of us are truly neither one nor the other all the time or even consistently. Instead, we tend to live somewhere all over that spectrum. The Sedaris essay also reminds us that whatever differences pertain in our relationships, the essential thing is that love is at the center. That like David and Hugh, we end up at the same table in love. For me, that closing bit isn't just a sweet picture of a loving relationship. It's a pretty accurate picture of the Eucharist. When we're all gathered at the table, looking for all the world, like people in love. And personally, I think a sidewalk cafe in Paris is as good a place for the heavenly banquet as any. Lastly, I like that audio clip, a secular audio clip, to underscore the crucial spiritual practice of listening, listening carefully, listening acutely to the everyday stuff that tends to slip right past us, and that's a spiritual practice. It's becoming more and more difficult in a world filled with distractions. We have to work harder at listening intentionally. The major takeaway this morning is that all our relationships are weird. And there is no one-size-fits-all spirituality. There is no single way to live daily in relationship with the people we love and care about or the ones who tend to work our last nerve. As I share some of my personal perspectives and principles, heed this 
disclaimer. Mark Twain smoked cigars, enjoyed good whiskey, and remarked that profanity, which he indulged liberally, offers a release denied even to prayer. <laughs> but Twain also maintained that while his habits protected him, those habits might assassinate anyone else. So bear that in mind, that my opinions and experiences are only illustration. They are not a template for each of you. So by way of introduction, let me share some highlights out of my own spiritual journey. Now, one of the several bishops who've had the misfortune of responsibility for me dared to ask me about my prayer life. He did not seem at all amused with my answer that I didn't have a prayer life, at least not in any sense that I think he would have considered orthodox. I actually take the collect of pure, for purity at its word. I believe in a God to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. God and I do not need staff meetings. But I also know that it takes a lot of work to forge a mature relationship with God or with anyone else. Now, I grew up watching television programs like Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver. Families in those shows actually held little family meetings. Do you remember? If Betty was invited to the prom or Bud wanted to use the family car, everyone sat down around a dining room table. Mom in her crisply starched shirt dress, her hair perfectly coiffed, and Dad in a white shirt and tie and suit. And they actually discussed things. I'm the eldest of five children, and never in the 18 years that I lived under my parents' roof did I ever sit in on a meeting like that. We didn't even have a dining room. We ate in the kitchen, at a round table, in whatever clothes we'd been wearing when mom managed to round us up, it was chaotic, it was haphazard, it was uproarious, and it was certainly volatile, but there was a kind of wholeness in the opening, in the open airing of our lives. In good times and in bad times, we trusted our love, and you know, it rarely failed us. It made us, and it keeps all of us five siblings strongly bound in love. That's the legacy of parents, our parents, who died some years ago. Now, I admit I am a recovering mess of insecurity. Despite or maybe even because of the relative privilege and loving family that surrounded me, I grew up with a deep fear of rejection. For most of my childhood and youth, I felt pretty much unlovable. I was physically awkward, bookish, artistic in a rural culture that deemed all these qualities a feat. Youth, adolescence, and young adulthood were for me a succession of hopeless infatuations, a pit of bottomless neediness. When I encouraged anyone who evidenced the slightest appreciation or affection for me, I threw myself at them. The ensuing assault was usually fatal, killing the tender shoots of love before they could possibly take root. 
In other words, I'd not yet learned how to love myself, much less how to love anyone else. Now, God and I had a very brief fling in my late adolescence, a time prone to excesses of hormones and emotion. One warm evening in Shady Grove Methodist Church, where I grew up, after a rousing revivalist sermon and one too many verses of just as I am, my chubby, acne-pocked self made a tearful path down to the altar rail, where I knelt and vowed to accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Thereafter, I plunged into an infatuated orgy of Bible reading, prayer, and superficial holiness, enough to smother even the God of Abraham. <laughs> what I failed to see is that this ill-formed immaturity was, at bottom, all about me. I wasn't truly receiving or rejoicing in God's love for me. I was still trying to win love, to earn love. It hadn't yet come to me that God neither required nor commanded anything of me. God simply loves me. What does it mean to my life that God loves me? What does the shape of this kind of love take? Well, first and foremost, the love manifest in Jesus is based upon ultimate and profound trust. Trust in the prodigal, unconditional love of God. If we want a real relationship with God, we have only to begin where Jesus begins, profound trust in the reality of God's prodigal love for him, for each of us, for you, and for me. But that's a big order. The relationship with God we see and know in Jesus is distinguished by identifiable characteristics. When he was pressed to articulate those characteristics, Jesus didn't resort to invention. He simply repeated the wisdom inherited from successive generations of other human beings before him who had encountered and embraced the love of God. Those who truly trust and embrace the love of God, the love that God has for them, respond by loving God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. Absolute commitment. This is the first and great compulsion of the genuine love of God and genuine human love manifest in Jesus a love accessible to each and every one of us. And the second compulsion is like it. Those who truly trust and embrace the love God has for them are compelled to love their neighbors as they love themselves. Therein lay the secret of my earlier undoing. I didn't accept or trust God's love for me nor could I truly respond to that love until I grew to love myself. There, too, lies one of the most serious shortcomings of much Christian teaching. Not only does some Christian teaching counsel an inordinate lack of self-regard by enforcing a an unthinking self-abnegation, especially in the season of Lent, 
but it further compounds that dereliction in the false assumptions of instantaneous conversion, the spiritual equivalent of love at first sight. We know how reliable that is. While it's certainly possible that an exceptional person might fall deeply, profoundly, and maturely in love with another person instantaneously, the more usual human experience is a pretty clumsy succession of haphazard relationships of varying intensity, duration, and damage. Most of us only gradually grow into love with one another and with God. Just as I didn't live happily ever after in undying affection with the first person for whom I felt a crushing rush of love at the age of five, neither did I arise from the revivalist altar call to find myself ensconced in a fully formed, mature relationship with God. That one might experience such profound trust so quickly and respond appropriately may well be possible, but it doesn't jibe either with my experience or that of most of the family of God whose stories are recorded in Scripture. If the shape of genuine love for God is that we love one another as Christ loved us, then this process is the work and span of a lifetime, and perhaps beyond a lifetime. Like every relationship, the relationship with God is a journey. And each traveler's path, perspective, and experience is unique. I was 25 years old on spring break in my senior year of seminary, weeks from graduation, when my dad finally figured out I'm gay and confronted me about it. Being a very controlling type A person, I don't take surprises terribly well. Certainly not that kind of surprise. I had absolutely no intention of coming out on the day or in the way that dad chose. So a volatile and ugly confrontation of our two Sicilian temperaments flared. And it stopped just short of physical blows, honestly. When I turned and stormed out of the house to prevent my slugging my dad. I went back to seminary and I watched my life shatter. It was like watching my own death in a bloody car wreck in excruciatingly slow motion. My boyfriend came to Washington for a weekend, and in a sleepless, gut-wrenching night, I ended our relationship. I went to my faculty advisor and then to my bishop, and without disclosing my reasons, I closed the book on the ordination process. Albert Mollagen, who taught me scripture and theology at Virginia Seminary, used to say that God loves us so much, God will let us send ourselves to hell. And I felt like I'd booked a nonstop flight in coach, no frills. Up till that point, I'd been pretty faithful in the usual disciplines of prayer, just like Richard, 
Daily Chapel, Compline in the dorm lounge each night, more private prayer at bedtime, my very favorite routine being that form of family evening prayer at the back of the 1928 prayer book with that haunting and powerfully beautiful prayer that God reform whatever is amiss in the temper and disposition of our souls. Purge our hearts from envy, hatred, and malice, that we may never suffer the sun to go down upon our wrath, but may always go to our rest in peace, charity, and goodwill with a conscience void of offense. God, that's beautiful. But when my life fell apart, so did my prayer. Chaos, fear, and grief opened a very strange spiritual vein. I was sitting in my dorm room one afternoon when it suddenly hit me that everything I valued, my family, my friends, my budding career, my love for another person, my hope of a relationship with him, all of that was totally ruined. And that's when I caved. I surrendered to my grief and I cried sinking lower into the abyss with each wrenching sob. We've all experienced something like that. When I reached the bottom and there were no more tears to shed and everything went silent, I heard myself utter the most sincere and memorable prayer I've ever offered, saying, God, you can have my life, my life now. You couldn't possibly fuck it up any more than I have. Now, you're never going to find that prayer in a prayer book. <laughs> it wasn't elegant. It wasn't pretty. But I guarantee you, it was very real. It was very honest. And I can attest that from that day on, I have known the companionable presence of God with me. That's the way it is with life, and that's the way it is with love. At least that's the way it is with my life and with my love. It's messy. Most relationships are. And faith is the heart and soul of relationship. To lose faith is to lose trust. And that's why we feel the way we do when it happens. It's not like we've misplaced the car keys or the phone. It's more like we've lost someone, like someone has died. Living relationship with another living being entails ups and downs, togetherness and apartness, and a host of other opposites and every subtle of gradation in between them, knowing and accepting this reality is maturity. Knowing and accepting this reality in one's relationship with God is spiritual maturity and a grounded faith, not just a pleasantly warm glow like sunset through stained glass, but a robustly comforting strength when the fallow times come. To quote John Shea, Spirituality can be defined as that which gives meaning to life and allows us to participate in the larger whole. Whatever its focus may be, he says, and whether it's religious or not, spirituality isn't something other than the human 
or transcending the human or added on to the human. Spirituality is part of our human development and as such, it comes into its fullness in adulthood. But I remind you, as St. Paul reminded many of the congregations of his own day, chronological age does not always mean maturity. Paul understood maturation in faith, and he spoke of it in his letters to the early believers. Some of you are infants, he said. Some have progressed to more solid food. And presumably, some actually made it to adulthood. If your prayer life has changed, it's quite likely that you're no longer where you used to be. And that's a good thing. That means you're growing. Yes, it could mean that you've drifted away from God. That does happen. Even as space sometimes expands between me and my husband when I grow preoccupied with my projects or find myself away from home for days on end or begin to take our relationship for granted or all of the above. When this happens, a little intentional discipline is called for. I'll adjust or change my calendar. I'll pay more attention to our life together. Sometimes we have to do the same thing in our relationship with God. Go away on a retreat. Set aside some time for intentional prayer or worship. Attend a workshop or work with someone on centering prayer or some new and different discipline. Whatever it is that brings us back into centered relationship with our divine partner. It's like doing spiritual rehab after a major surgery or accident. We have to do a little rehab work in our relationships. But sometimes even that's too much to manage. When we find that we're not just lost, we can't even find the compass. And as an Eagle Scout, I learned that when you're lost, panic isn't your friend. The best thing to do is just stop and stay put and settle in. Even if you're hiking by yourself, you're never alone. Someone who knows you, someone who loves you, someone who's in relationship with you will be looking for you. When faith fails, that someone who loves you, who's looking for you, is God. God knows you, God loves you, and God is looking for you. Meanwhile, just make camp. When faith fails, make a home in that wilderness and make yourself at home there. Keep the door open, keep the space open and hospitable. God knows the way home. I know because in that deep abyss of my own loss, in that story I shared with you, God obviously found a way in. I was given utterance. I was given the very real presence of God, a God who is right there to hear my profane prayer, close enough to hold me and accompany me out of that pit. 
That was also the beginning of a new kind of relationship between God and me. We had definitely turned a corner. As trust and confidence build, as we grow in love with another person, and they grow in love with us, we can be more truly ourselves. We invest less time in the ritual preparations for dates, and we maximize our time with the other person. As the analogy suggests, spirituality sometimes seems a hard discipline because we've not learned how to relax in relationship to and relationship with God. Our relationship may not have yet ripened into mature intimacy. We're still dating. Nearly every Christian catechism maintains that the chief end of humankind, our only reason for being, is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. Glorification and enjoyment encompass the fullness of mature intimacy with God. There's ample evidence of this understanding in biblical scripture and centuries of Christian writing giving unabashed, even carnal expression of the human divine relationship. G.K. Chesterton notes of the first Sabbath, that seventh day of rest at creation, that, quote, God rests and rejoices not to affirm that the universe is perfect, but to declare that it is good. The staggering surprise is that the world is a risk-laden mystery rather than an immaculate machine. It seems inconceivable that God did not create a perfectly flawless universe, he says, but created something strangely better instead, a cosmos that God superintends through the contingency of natural causation and human willing. Glimpses of true holiness, glimpses of what we might truly be, of what I can truly be when I allow myself to be more human, don't come while sequestered in prayer. They come in my here and now, in being fully present to my own life. This life that God gives me every day and fills with incredible riches if I just open my eyes to see them. I have seen good and I have seen God in those moments of grace when I and my fellow human beings stop pretending to be God and stop excusing ourselves as demons, simply embracing the reality of what we are, imperfect beings in an imperfect world. That's what it means to honor God. That's what glorifying God is. That's what it means to enjoy God, to partake in the joy of God's creating. As Irenaeus said it, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. That's it. Lawrence Wagley reminds us that prayer is primarily the initiative of God coming to form a caring relationship with us. When prayer is thought of as a human accomplishment, it turns toward concern for goals and values that are attainable by hard work and which have as their reward personal gratification. 
Wagley says that God's act of salvation in Jesus has changed the direction of prayer. That's a very important sentence. God's act of salvation in Jesus Christ has changed the direction of prayer. An anxious striving for God has been changed into a thankful acceptance of God, healing eyes and ears so we may see and hear and know God's presence in the world. Prayer, he says, is not a rare thing to be searched for. It's the activity of life, the moving atmosphere that sustains even when we are unaware of it. The act of Jesus' life and death and our redemption marks the turn from a relationship with God that was predicated upon appeasement and begging for God's love and became instead the task of opening ourselves to receive God's love. That's at the heart of the experience of Jesus. It's how people came to understand the importance of Jesus' role in our lives. When we stopped worshiping idols, burning sacrifices to a God, and totally reoriented ourselves to the notion that God might actually want to have a relationship with us. Spirituality and spiritual practice isn't about hard work. A theology of prayer that puts the emphasis on work and discipline, says Wagley, is a very bad theology. We pray to a God who takes the initiative. Prayer is a form of grace. It's an expression of the ultimate gift, the gift of God's self to us. When we see the whole of our lives as incarnate prayer, we find integrity, wholeness, fullness of life. Prayer in its purest form is an expression of relationship. When Jesus said, inasmuch as you do this unto the least of these, you have done it unto me, he is not simply talking about charity. Inasmuch as we relate to one another, we are in relationship with God. We are in relationship with the Christ. It's that simple. In the same article that Wagley, is, I'm quoting from Wagley, Luke Johnson says that Christian spirituality needs an intellectual recasting that takes seriously the life of ordinary people in a world shaped by modernity rather than the monastery. And this is an especially important critique for us Anglicans. For many of us priests are products of seminaries or divinity schools that formed us in models and disciplines of devotion based on monastic principles and practices. Daily gatherings in chapels around prayer. Moreover, our Book of Common Prayer began its life as a compilation of monastic offices and rites only minimally adapted for use in secular parishes. And the more time you spend with it, the more awkwardness in it you discover. Cranmer was good, but he wasn't perfect. That's not to say there's no merit in either. 
but rather that those forms and disciplines ought perhaps to be to us as rudiments are to any discipline. They're a foundation. Learning to pray in the way that the prayer book shapes our prayer is to the life of a Christian what learning scales is to a musician. They're practice disciplines. And if you learn the scales, you'll never forget them. They'll come back to you. You have to do a little bit of practice, but they will come back to you. And if you learn the rhythms and the practices of the Eucharist and the prayers and the prayer book, they'll never leave you. But you don't stop there. They're a starting place. They're a means to an end, not an end in themselves. Our spiritual practices, like all of our practices, are subject to change over the course of our lifetimes. My partner Chris and I still occasionally dress up and go out like we did when we first met. But those occasions are the exception and usually involve a very expensive to, uh, ticket to a charity dinner. Most days, we're just pretty boring, ordinary guys like David and Hugh. Look, they're opening their electric bill. Chris and I know that what we look like in all sorts and conditions. The passion's still there, but that's different too. Leavened with experience and larded with humor. You know, naked people, especially older naked people, really can and do look funny. And that kind of humor is deeply spiritual because without it, most of us wouldn't have any sexual intimacy at all. <laughs> Maybe you still maintain the spiritual practices of your youth, but I doubt it. You're a lot different now than when you were kneeling beside your bed learning now I lay me down to sleep. Your life and your habits and your routines are different and that's okay, that's reality. Don't beat yourself up if you're not maintaining some exotic or esoteric spiritual practice and don't be envious of those who do. Just be aware that spiritual practices are sometimes an intentional escape from the real relationship those practices are meant to nurture and express, so be aware of that. As you can become addicted to running or any other discipline, you can become addicted to spiritual discipline and use it as an excuse not to engage in the lives of other people. Relationship is risky. Relationship can change us. And if we honestly examine our lives and the quality of our relationship with God, most of us still have a rich, substantive spiritual life. But like all of our relationships, especially our dearest and most intimate relationships, if there's an issue or a problem, it's the person, not the practice, that needs our attention. Remember that you, you are as essential to this relationship as God is that we can only love God to the extent that we've made peace with our neighbors, and we can't truly love our neighbors if we're not at least fond of ourselves, which isn't the same as being full of ourselves. Pay attention to those essential qualities that make you who you are. Aspects of self that emerge over time and like all things organic are subject to growth, change, and in some instances, death. Some of the aspects of self that I absorbed from my family, friends, and the larger culture around me, 
and that I once held to be the essence of who I am, some of those things had to die in order that I might become more truly myself. The lifelong discernment of self is an essential spiritual practice. This discernment demands personal reflection, but it also demands constant conversation in relationship. This practice demands continual engagement of my innermost self with God, with my spouse, with all those in the radiating circles of relationship expanding outward from that center, what in our tradition we call communion. Each of us is at the center of a communion. For you, this may be a different approach to spirituality and spiritual practice. I suspect it is. It won't be the first time that people have encountered my weirdness. While it may sometimes call upon familiar practices, even those familiar practices take on new dimensions when they're undertaken in service to this practice of self-discernment. That's a notion I want to underscore. It's an ancient principle. Know thyself is that ancient principle. The principle that we examine and evaluate our spiritual practices as they serve the central spiritual work of relationship. The practices that best serve our relationships are our most constructive spiritual disciplines. These are often rather mundane practices, not readily associated with spirituality or religion. For example, in an article reflecting upon his movie portrayal of Oscar Wilde, the British actor Stephen Fry remarked that the chief memory I have of playing Oscar isn't one of spouting witty epigrams, but one of listening and reacting. W.B. Yeats remarked, he said, what a great listener Wilde was. And Sir Arthur Conan, Conan Doyle is said to have once left a dinner party raving about Wilde's gift as a conversationalist. But you did all the talking, Doyle's companion pointed out. Exactly, Conan Doyle said. Nowadays, we need more than an encouragement to listen. We're bombarded by stuff seeping and creeping into our heads and our hearts, even when we think that we've tuned it out. That's the power of subliminal messaging. Paying attention is now an intentional spiritual practice. Actually giving attention to what we're hearing and to what we're reading, not hurriedly skimming, but real reading in every discipline, nonfiction or fiction or even just the newspaper, whenever our interest and curiosity and wherever our interest and curiosity takes us. In listening and in reading, we engage relationship with someone communicating with us on that page, including the God whose relationship with us is based substantially upon an oral record eventually written down and still read and reflected upon in our worship. Appreciate the Jewish precept that counts study as sacred conversation, a form of prayer, a genuine spiritual discipline. You are praying when you read the paper, when you read a novel, when you pay attention to a movie. And don't turn away from the unpleasant or the painful, 
Believe your pain, wrote W.H. Auden. And your pain is no mistake, wrote Joseph Brodsky, adding, nothing that disturbs you ever is. Pain is crucial to discernment. Sitting with it when we want desperately to flee is a very hard spiritual practice, as most of us know. As a footnote to my earlier story, my coming out story, I attest that what I know of God's love, I learned from my own father's loving example. Dad and I survived that coming out showdown. We endured. It took us fully 15 years. But we did eventually come to a profoundly rich relationship surpassing anything either one of us could ever have imagined. I counted a joy and a privilege many times over that he never turned away from the difficult task and never turned away from me, but was steadfast in professing his love for me and eventually for Chris, my husband, as well. I have a profound respect for everything he had to overcome to reach that place. And I counted a joy and a privilege that in conversation and preaching and speaking as I am this morning in my writing and on his deathbed, I was able to tell my father how fortunate I was to have him as my dad. What a profound influence he'd been in my life. And I was able to thank him for it. And that was truly a gift. In our own ways, Dad and I discovered the wisdom of Philip Simmons' observation that we're truly grown up when we stop trying to fix people. About all we can really do, he says, for people is to love them and treat them with kindness. And that goes for ourselves too, said Simmons. That goes for ourselves especially. It's a lesson all the more precious for the labor it requires. Nowadays, one of the most important disciplines in our household is cocktail hour. It's a habit learned from dear friends, Jay and Richard, who nurtured and sustained a loving relationship for over 40 years. After experiencing their daily ritual, Chris and I adopted it for ourselves. Each day, and we're both introverts, we wind up whatever we're doing around six or so, and we sit down over a drink. When we were both working, commuting 20 or so miles in opposite directions daily, it was an opportunity to quietly be present to and with one another with no particular agenda. It was glorification and enjoyment of God in each other, and it still is. Getting to that place where I could bear, much less enjoy, peaceful companionship with my own little self was probably the hardest journey of my life. But when I ceased running away from myself and could actually be with myself as a beloved friend and rest in the profound sense of well-being, everything was transfigured. We're really neither fit or ready for a life with someone else, I think, until we've reached this kind of personal integration and integrity. Most therapists would agree. One of the highest spiritual practices 
is called practicing the presence of God. And the only way we can accomplish that is giving ourselves fully to the moment in all its fullness, being attentive to ourselves, to the other or others sharing our company, mindful that in that moment, alone or with others, we are always in the presence of God. That's a deeply holy space. That core of each of us that no one else can ever truly know. I sometimes get there on my own volition, but more often than not, I find myself there. I find myself there when I'm truly attentive to my life in the moment. Sometimes it's that quiet moment sitting across the room from Chris when he's totally unaware of my gaze, maybe even taking a nap, oblivious to my presence. When just sitting there looking at him, a wave of emotion crests over me. There are no words, only an overwhelming sense of grace in the simple trust that exists between us and the deep awareness I have in the gift of loving and being loved by such a person. We've all known those moments, standing over the crib of a child, looking at the face of the person that we love, holding the hand of a family member about to cross from this world over the threshold into whatever lies beyond this one. Whatever it is for you, I suspect that you've known it. Those moments when your mind is truly empty, the tongue is still, your hands are stayed, and your only heart, filled with awe and wonder and gratitude. In those moments, we're Moses barefoot at the burning bush, where shepherds and magi gathered at the manger, Simeon and Anna in the temple, Thomas on his knees in wonder before the resurrected Jesus. That's pure prayer. That is profound spiritual practice. I appreciate particularly the spiritual practice described in a profile of Gene Robinson that was written by journalist Andrew Corsello some years ago for GQ magazine, shortly after Gene was consecrated Bishop of New Hampshire. And I end with this because I think it's such a wonderful statement about spirituality and prayer. Gene Robinson, Ask About Prayer, responded, <clears throat> I try to use my prayer as a space and a time in which I let God love me. I close my eyes and I think of light and I think of warmth and I think of God's love and I feel it starting at the top of my head and dripping over me like melting butter. You see, Gene closes his eyes, turns the plane of his face up and lifts his cupped palms near to the level of his chin and says, it's when I let God love me that I remember who I am. It's when I let God love me that I remember who I am. 
So I return to and conclude with that notion that prayer is primarily the initiative of God coming to form a caring relationship with us. And I welcome you to this Lent 2019 and invite you to embrace your daily lives and your relationships as a spiritual discipline. It's all you need and it's the most profound discipline you could practice in Lent or any other time of life. Embrace it as a spiritual practice. And God grant you a holy Lent. Let it be a time and a place to let God love you, that you may remember who you are. Amen. Well, Sam, I think that's as good as it gets. <laughs> Please join me in thanking Thank you. Me.